The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Sonic Spaces. Um an event organized by Jennifer O'Mara in the Creative um, Arts um, School in, here in Trinity College. And uh, this evening's talk will be on environmental sounds. Um, to, to, to this evening's panel is a multidisciplinary panel and uh, they will discuss um, a, a wide range of areas from uh, our experience of listening within natural, urban and social environments. Um, the event is hosted by Francesca O'Rafferty here in the uh, Trinity College, the Long Room Hub. And um, I will just, I'll kick off with um, Lawrence, Gill and Nora Walsh will start the discussion. Uh, I'll give some brief bios. Uh, Lawrence is a professor of environmental engineering in Trinity College, Dublin. His research interests involve studying the fate and transport of both air, water and borne pollutants in natural and built environments, the development of passive treatment processes, the eco-hydrology and greenhouse emissions of wetlands and the characterization of karst hydrological catchments. He is principal investigator uh, who leads the country's first applied uh, geoscience SFI research center, ICRAG, and heads the Groundwater Research Spoke, which focuses on karst hydrology. Uh, also speaking with Lawrence will be Nora Walsh. Nora is a Dublin-based composer, musical director, and pianist. She holds a first-class honours BMOS in composition from DIT. Her instrumental and vocal works have been performed by acclaimed ensembles, soloists, and choirs within Ireland and abroad. Nora's compositions are predominantly acoustic, drawing from a broad range of influences, including classical, popular, Irish, uh, traditional, and jazz. Nora is represented by the Contemporary Music Centre. So over to Lawrence and Nora. Okay, thanks, Jimmy. Uh, just gonna share my screen. So hopefully everybody can see that. Yeah, so thanks for the opportunity. Um, so myself and Nora, who we've just been introduced, um, we're gonna talk about the composition of a piece of music that, that um, Nora composed called Inception Horizon, which um, evokes basically how water moves down through limestone um, down into cave systems and out into the spring. So I specialize, my, my area is environmental engineering and I'm gonna talk a bit about the background first of um, what I do in terms of looking at cast environments. Uh, and then, then Nora will come in and start to talk about how she um, came up with the, uh, the piece of music, the, the inspiration and how she composed it. Then we'll come back and talk about the, the, the premiere of, of, the, of, the, of the work in the museum building in Trinity College, which is this um, building here you can see. And then finally, we'll, we'll, we'll play a snippet uh, at, at the end of, of the music um, so you can get, get a feeling for what it's like. So it's all about, uh, the piece is all about cast hydrology. Um, and by cast, this is a specific landform type um, that occurs predominantly in limestone in Ireland. Where the water sculpts, it erodes the the rock and it sculpts these quite dramatic forms, both outside. So this is a picture of the the Burren in um, County Clare, 
but also probably more dramatically, but less seen by people, is the underground um, caverns, these labyrinths with these uh, spectacular forms, like stalactites, stalagmites that you're probably familiar with, but there's lots of other types of forms. So what we do, um, what I'm interested in in research, is how water passes through these, these systems. And this, this schematic shows different aspects that we, we, we look into. So we're, look, we're looking at it from a water resources perspective, because like, people you know, use a lot of water from cast is used across the world, about 20% of the world's water comes from cast systems. Um, how fast does the water come down through the systems? Um, also, a lot of this water supports specific ecosystems, which I'll talk about a bit in a minute, like wetlands. And then we're also interested in how um, contaminants, whether it's from agriculture or um, wastewater, move through these systems. And I, I build a lot of numerical models and we can use the models to answer different questions. So just to give some context, so here, here in Ireland, we have this specific um, type of lake known as a, a turlock. So in, in the summer, you can see here, it, it's dry and animals graze on the field. But in the winter, after heavy rain events, the, the, the water comes up from the cast systems underneath and can, can flood these areas. And these lakes bounce up and down um, over the winter time and only very specific vegetation can, can grow in, in this environment. So it's very important from an ecology perspective. And this is the type of thing we look at how, the hydrology of the system, how these things bounce up and down and how these link into the ecology. Now, when um, you get excessive rain, rainfall events and climate change is exacerbating this um, to some extent in the winter time, you can get flooding. So this is flooding here in, in South Galway, so it's flooded the railway line. And again, we, we, we evaluate this type of thing and come up with hopefully solutions to the flooding. Um, so this slide just shows, you know, my, my day job, if you like, um, we, we, we spend a lot of time out in the field um, measuring water, the chemistry of water, how, how much water flows both over, over land and underground. This, this pink, this is a pink dye we've injected into the, the water to try and trace where, where, where it goes because everything's underground. You don't, you don't know where, it, where it's going. So anyway, that's, that's the type of thing I, I do during the daytime. But in the evening, I also sing in a choir called the Melotonics. And this is where the story really starts. So I'll hand over to Nora now to talk about the Melotonics. Thanks. Thanks very much, Lawrence. And thanks to Jennifer and Francesca for inviting us to this event. It's, it's lovely to be involved. And um, when Lawrence first approached me with this idea of a work that celebrated the underground karst landscape of Ireland, I was absolutely fascinated. And after initial discussions, we very quickly decided to try to produce it. And Melotonics pictured here is a choir that I conduct and that Lawrence sings with. They sing contemporary classical music amongst other genres. And so they came on board to perform it. And then we were delighted to get funding from the TCD Visual and Performing Arts Fund and ICRAG to put it all together. And I suppose the research began then with a field trip to the Burren where we visited many of the features that Lawrence has described. Um, we climbed mountains and navigated forests and we slept on the coast and we went caving and we saw the very impressive underground karst formations that he spoke of. And Lawrence had mapped out this tour in a very considered way that allowed us to make sense of the science behind the process, as well as immerse ourselves in the landscape. And of course, the, the spaces, including the sonic spaces, were a very important source of inspiration. The contrast between the, the openness and the wildness of the slopes of the mountains and the assault on the senses there versus the contained, calm, quiet, kind of motionlessness of the air in the caves. And of course, their natural acoustics, which we, we tried out when we were caving. 
And the, the beauty of these natural features and their being part of my own Irish heritage, well, they were also very inspiring elements to it. And um, so onto the composition, the, the text, uh, for me, when composing for voice, a significant driver is what the text is saying and how to convey that. And Lawrence had given me scientific publications by himself and his colleagues to read, to become a little bit more familiar with the karst process. And that's where I got the idea of drawing from these and using key phrases, key points of the process and descriptions of the places. So that's what makes up the text that you can see there. And this opened huge opportunities for me because it wasn't a prescribed narrative where I had to include every word or lines of a certain length. I could basically pick and choose whatever I found to be evocative. And you can see the vocabulary is actually very, very rich. I mean, words like anastomotic and ramiform that I'd never come across before. And, uh, and the title, Inception Horizon, it's, it's so dramatic. It's very, very epic. Um, so that was quite appealing. And then I also got feedback from geologists about how interesting it was to hear their technical vocabulary being sung. So that was kind of a, a rewarding uh, byproduct of the, the whole thing. So I drew my own narrative uh, of the water starting on the limestone plains and of it moving through the ground, finding that weak point, the inception horizon, where it can break through and erode uh, to a greater extent. Um, and then it becomes greater in volume, descending through progressively larger conduits until a cave is formed. And then beyond that, where the water comes to a spring and goes above ground again. And then onto some of the composition features. There are some very clear representations in this piece of what we call extra musical things, so non-musical things. So it's more in the category of program music than, than absolute music. And in the structure of the work, there are, I suppose, two main journeys. The first is the passage of the water in a downward trajectory. And that we hear in the pitches of the piece moving in a downward direction. So the inception horizon itself is painted quite clearly in the stepping down of the alto voices while the sopranos hold their upper notes, just like the continuing ceiling that stretches out in a cave system. And you can see that in the, in the score sample there. And then later on, the male voices join in and do something similar. And the second uh, structural thing then, I suppose, is, is the building up of the water volume, the gathering of pace as it erodes progressively larger conduits. So in the music, the voices go from solo and sparse at the opening to a, a denser six-part texture with the full vocal force of the choir at the point when we reach the vast open cave and the, the huge ricocheting of sound that goes with that. And then aside from those sort of larger structural elements, there's also other word painting. There's whispering and breathing and vocal sounds overlapping. And so they're kind of trickling in a freeway that's not unlike water. And uh, for the laminar flow, the musical lines move in a repeated parallel way compared to the more chaotic movement of turbulent flow. And that's for the, the geologist musical academics amongst you. Um, so then we, we had the event and maybe I'll pass you back to Lawrence to introduce that. Yes, yeah, so th thanks Doris. Uh, um, yeah, so the, um, 
the event itself, so, so the whole thing sort of took, took, took on and um, sort of mushroomed a bit. So we decided to have a, a public perception event whereby the, the, the choral work was the, going to be the finale, the world premiere of this new piece of work. But before that, uh, we, we had um, different speakers, geologists, hydrogeologists, and we had a film by speleologists, Kate, Kate Cavers, um, in the museum building, this wonderful Victorian building, which is actually where my office is. Um, but Nora will talk a bit more about the acoustics in a minute, but um, it's a spectacular um, building. And we had a sculptor, um, Helen O'Connell, she's based in Wicklow, but she actually sings in our choir as well. And she was commissioned to create this piece of work. You can see here, so this is similar to the, the walls of the caves, these um, scallops that you get. And so everybody, as they walked into the building, um, would pass through through this sculpture. sculpture. And um, so the whole thing was a, an immersive experience. And initially it was all, all in the dark. I actually played a music piece of music on the Ellen Pipes initially in the dark to generate this atmosphere. Um, and you can see these projections on the back walls. So this was a, a big part of the experience. Um, uh, so these projections were designed by a graphic designer, uh, Dara, who runs a company called Queen Bee. She's also in the choir. We have a lot of talented people in the choir. And the projections were carried out by um, a UK company called Seventh Sense and um, a guy called Ian, who's actually my cousin as well, who, who made these amazing projections onto the back wall. Um, so then we, we, we went through these different um, sp speeches, et cetera, and talks. And finally, we got to the uh, the bit where we're going to perform the, 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 the piece of music, the Inception Horizon. So I'll go back to Nora to discuss this. Thanks, Lawrence. Yeah, so the work is a celebration of types of underground space. So the idea of space and acoustics are central to the composition. And then it was performed in a particular type of space as well. We, we do hope to perform it in a cave at some point in the future, but the premiere was in the museum building there and that has a lot of, a lot of boom and echo. And uh, that can be an advantage or a disadvantage depending on what you want to do. But it was perfect for us because the unpredictable bouncing of sound against uh, the vaulted ceiling and the columns, they're not really unlike what you might get in a cave. And then also we placed the opening solo voices in different parts of the room to interesting effect. So it, it was actually the perfect space for us. And then the elements of, of light and dark, uh, they were quite critical to the performance. We dimmed the lights as the piece took us lower into the ground and it got fully dark at the point where we hit the cave. And that was also the point where I, I experienced one of my most interesting conducting challenges ever which was to conduct by glow stick. And uh, it kind of added a, a healthy bit of fear to the performance for me anyway. Um, but what was also interesting is the way in which we listen when we can see nothing. So we're, we're in this majestic space and the light leaves us and our, our ears are even more attuned to what's going on around them. So yeah, so now we're going to hear a, a clip and show it. Um, this is from a, a pre-recorded rehearsal, so you won't get the, the atmospheric feel for the dark and the projections, but, um, but sure, you can close your eyes and imagine it. So we, we just play a minute or two of this, okay? So this is uh, halfway through the piece. <laughs>
today. So hopefully you get a flavor for the, the piece there. And um, that's, that's the end of our talk. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay, wow, that was uh, so powerful. Thanks a million, um, Nora and Lawrence. That was really amazing. I really I miss live events and I wish I had have been there. Um, I forgot to mention we are recording this event, just to let you know. Uh, so up next is Gronya Hope. Um, I'll give a brief bio on Gronya. She is a professional cellist and an Atlantic fellow at the Global Brain Health Institute here in Trinity College. She is founder and artistic director of Kids Classics, Ireland's leading music and healthcare organization. She is a qualified trainer of musicians within healthcare settings and works through EU programs such as Music Network Ireland and Music A Sante France. Gronje was also awarded a cultural leadership award through the Wellcome Trust. So over to Gronje. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here this evening. Um, I suppose uh, it's very interesting when the whole idea of look at the sounds and the environment and the sounds within healthcare environments. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of um, the, the, I suppose, the things that uh, I think about bringing music and sound into a healthcare setting. Um, some considerations of live music in these environments um, are an approach to placing live music appropriately and sensitively in this setting and also looking at uh, the considerations in, in care homes around uh, hearing and dementia and uh, last but not least uh, how we've had to sort of reconsider and reimagine our programs in these current COVID times. So um, I suppose as a if we were to look at you know the, the healthcare setting um, we might be you know a hospital in a nursing home and we might look at it's a workplace it's also a home uh, and you know, treatment goes on, diagnosis, recovery, and healing. Um, comes what comes to mind in the space within these settings, maybe for perhaps some of you is an atrium, a reception space, a corridor, a waiting room, a bedside, or a bedroom, um, and windows and gardens. And I suppose that's where a lot of uh, over the last ten months, anyway, a lot of music has taken place. Um, but looking at the sounds within these, I certainly I'm sure some come to mind um, of you know TVs, radios phones, trolleys, alarms, beeps. But there's also lots of conversations, whether that is a clinical conversation or whether that is between families and patients. The other thing I'd like you to consider is that there are sounds of emotions, that of tears, that of laughter. And there's also that of silence. Silence is very powerful sound in certain settings within healthcare settings. And it's something that we need to consider when adding sound to this environment. Um, as the saying goes, a picture can paint a thousand words. So I'd like to share with you a few photos of a number of our programs in action in healthcare settings. Um, so three of the main ones would be Kids Classics, which takes place in children's hospitals, Musical Memories, a program that takes place in nursing homes, and Medical Notes, um, a program that takes place in general hospitals. Along the right-hand side here, you'll see a number of our funders, and they include the National Concert Hall, County Council Arts Offices, and hospitals. Um, and I'd like to thank one of our, our musicians in our team, David Hope, for allowing us um, put one of his songs under the, these few photos that we're going to share with you now. Take it all so slow, there's no hurry now, ease your mind. 
In sharing that, um, you see a lot of the places where music gets placed, um, but I'd like to just to consider for a moment as a musician um, and to share with you how I think of music in this space, uh, placing live music. So, you know, something that I've trained for for many, many years, you know, is a performance. And this often takes place in a concert hall, a set stage and um, something where, you know, the, the intention with sharing a music is a performance. Um, it's, you know, the, the concert hall or the, you know, the, the setting is designed for that purpose for sound. There, there may be amplification and the audience predominantly will, will be in front of you. Um, and all, it's a set repertoire. People know what they're coming into as the audience when they come in. Um, and you can see many genres and lots of different kinds of instrumentation. So that's, you can really prepare for that um, uh, as a musician when you're playing in, a, in what would be considered a traditional setting. But um, when I look at the same four topics and taking them out, the setting, the intention, the acoustics and the repertoire, and we look in my role as a place in music, as a musician in healthcare, um, there are other considerations that need. So you nearly have to do a 360 in how you think in place in music. The space is, it's a clinical space. It's a workspace and it can be a home space. Three words that come to mind perhaps for you when thinking of this space around health, healing and well-being. Um, my intention when go, I go into a healthcare space is, is that of a musician. It's not of, of a therapist, but my role as a musician is really person focused. It's about being flexible and responsive to the setting and the settings needs. I mean, the acoustics in these settings are very, very different. Often in hospitals, it, it's hard surfaces that bounce sound around and um, the volume um, you have to be careful what kind of instruments may play there because it's not about amplification or projection. It's about a sensitively appropriately placing that sound in that setting. Because after all, sound will float down corridors. So you have a lot of consideration. You're, um, you know, it's a really nearly like a 360 degree surround sound you have to think of because there's people all around you. And as we know, sound travels. Um, and the repertoire, again, it's the appropriateness of the repertoire that you bring in here. You need to think of lyrics of songs. There's a lot of vulnerable people here with a lot of emotion in the space. And I, I suppose in some ways it's about their repertoire when I go in there. It's not about my repertoire, it's about their repertoire and what they might like hearing. And I suppose it goes without saying, not all instruments are perhaps suitable for healthcare settings. 
Um, in the, now, in considering all that, you know, the approach that um, I use and, and my colleagues use is there's three different ways of doing it. There's an approach that's just simply music in words to offer an open invite to listen or participate. Heads might pop out because um, they'd like to hear a little bit more. Um, it could be in an atrium space. Um, we may float music while a patient waits for test results or um, a parent is waiting for their loved one who's in surgery. A second approach might be music, what we call music for. So a conversation leads to a suggestion of a piece. It's a more uh, person-centered approach. For instance, you could be in a ward and you would have been told a young patient likes a particular TV character or story, or you could be in a nursing home and told that a, a resident loves a particular type of music and you accommodate that. And then I suppose a third approach is, is it's much, again, it's getting to build a high level of trust between you and others. It's, it's music with, so it sees us as two musicians and myself as a musician and that person in front of me as a musician. And it's about supporting a person in perhaps in a residential setting, sing a verse or two of their song. Um, or in a children's hospital, being part of a pop-up band uh, with a young patient. Um, but more impo most importantly, these approaches are about, I suppose, appropriate placement versus a performance in the traditional sense. And it's not about uh, a musician as in my performance, um, but also to note, I suppose, it can move between any of these approaches in any one time, but requires a level of skill, training, awareness, and a great deal of building trust. And I couldn't let it go without talking a little bit uh, here to, uh, you know, on nursing home and care settings and the consideration around hearing and also dementia. Uh, hearing loss, I suppose, is both a problem of detecting sound and of understanding speech. It's said that 60 to 80% of residents in nursing homes will have some form of moderate to severe hearing loss. So in a loud room and with a speaker not directly facing um, somebody, there's a loss of the visual cues that a person has to fill in the gaps. And as a result, I suppose more cognitive resources are, are needed to extract meaning, which in turn can cause some people to withdraw than engage. And it can be a little bit disorientating and lead to confusion. And of all the senses, I suppose hearing is one that has the most significant impact on people with dementia in terms of quality of life. Uh, people with dementia can experience difficulties with their hearing, aside from those traditionally related to aging. However, it can also be said that someone who may have dementia, hearing can be fine, but the disease can have an impact on a way a person interprets information. They may find it difficult or may, it may take longer to work out what has been said to them. They may have experienced uh, problems identifying what, what a sound is or picking out a sound. Um, and loud or sudden sounds may also startle or frighten a person with dementia. So these are just really considerations as a musician going into a healthcare setting, what, what needs to be considered. Um, and some research suggests also that wandering behavior may be, may be a way for a person with dementia to try and remove themselves from an overstimulating situation. And last but not least, I couldn't go without mentioning a little bit, our programs are reconsidered They're uh, in, a, in, a, in a technological, well, in sharing over technology, I suppose. Um, so musicians at call, uh, on call, we go to bedsides now, um, and there's a number of what I would say, opportunities and challenges with this. Um, you know, but the opportunity is it helps us stay connected with people. We to be able to continue to support patients, residents, families, and staff, and it's a social engagement and fun. There are plenty of challenges in, in delivering music this way. You know, we can only observe the screen in front of us, the square, and there's a lot of latency issues. No two musicians can play together, and um, the environmental sound can often disrupt um, disrupt the flow of, of communication and conversations. But I couldn't, I suppose, without, I couldn't leave today to say there are risks with placing sounds in, in a healthcare setting. But the important thing is to train musicians to work 
to work safely and appropriately in these settings and and I suppose to consider around you know there's a lot of vulnerable people there there's a lot of emotions things we never trained as a performance uh, major perhaps in college and um, you know there's ethics confidentiality and health and safety to consider and I suppose the most, most important thing to leave you with is artists and um, it really artists need to understand their role in healthcare setting for, for good placement and appropriate placement of sound in the setting to support all. So thank you very much for allowing me to share this with you today. Thanks a million, Grania. That was so interesting. Um, really thanks, awesome. Antonella. Uh, um, and thanks very much as well for uh, inviting me to speak as well. So I work for Limerick City and County Council in the Physical Development Directorate. It's a department that deals mainly with transportation and environmental policy and much of my work deals with acoustics and noise action planning which uh, I'll discuss briefly. Uh, I came across Antonella's work in a uh, scientific paper and thought that the Hush City framework was a great way to identify and assess quiet areas in Limerick and to incorporate citizen engagement as well. As Antonella said it's a tool for the public that can be used to identify and assess areas that provide people peace and tranquility uh, based not just on the sound levels, it takes account of people's perception of the sound, the quality of the sound. So I'm just going to uh, share my screen there. Uh, so just to put it into co context, according to the World Health Organization, environmental noise leads to a disease burden that's second only in magnitude in Europe to air pollution. Uh, Long-term exposure to excessive loud env environmental noise can be bad for our health. There's the direct injury to our hearing, such as tinnitus uh, or hearing loss, but it can also lead to psychological and physiological distress. Uh, the European Agency in 2020 reported on the number of people in Europe suffering from various health conditions due to exposure from environmental road noise in urban areas. And as you can see, there's a significant number of people that are severely affected. So it's important that we manage environmental noise. So how can we protect quiet areas? Well, I'm gonna bore you now with the, a little bit of legislation, but under the environmental noise, uh, European Environmental Noise Directive, which was transposed into Irish law back in 2006, local authorities are required to prepare a noise action plan every five years, the latest one being for 2018 to 2023. And the directive requires plans to be made to prevent and reduce environmental noise. In Limerick, that's mainly road noise. But what's also important is preserving environmental noise quality where it's good. And where the environmental noise quality is good, the directive allows member states to designate quiet areas for protection within agglomerations, large urban areas, but also in the open countryside. Uh, Limerick and its suburbs is going to be classed as an agglomeration from 2023. And we're starting to think about where those quiet areas might be. The directive also requires us to consult with the public in the development of our plans. And so I believe that the Hosh City app is a perfect tool to collect that data. So we promoted the Hosh City app in Limerick from last January uh, in 2020, but we've been impacted by COVID. So mainly we've been advertising through social media since. Uh, we had planned to have Antonella over to carry out a sound walk and give a public presentation as part of Limerick being a European Greenleaf city in, uh, last 2020 but that had that had, that's had to be postponed until uh, it's safe to do so but that will still go ahead in Ireland Dublin is the only city to have designated any quiet areas for 
protection at the moment. They designated eight, which were mainly parks, and they've been designated based on noise modeling, land use analysis, and the assessment of noise levels. And at these locations, noise doesn't exceed 55 decibels L den, which is a 24 hour noise indicator, and 45 decibels at night. And this is a criteria that's been based on a quantitative assessment on numbers. So these are long-term noise exposure levels that aren't exceeded. However, as I said, natural sounds aren't necessarily quiet. Natural sounds can be loud. So a designation based on a qualitative approach, a measurement of the perceived quality of the sound and its context would be more appropriate. So talking about the perception of sound, I'm just gonna indulge myself just for a, a few seconds there and try an experiment with you. Uh, I'm gonna show you two environments uh, and I'll play the sound and I'll be, quite, I'll be quiet and I can see which one you find is most relaxing. Uh, and if you can't hear it, you might let me know. So I'm just gonna start it there now. So you probably gathered that both sounds are the same and they're a white noise, but I'm sure you'd agree that the scene of the waterfall was more peaceful than the industrial fans. The important point is that the assessment of quiet areas, the consideration should be given to human perception. What is considered peaceful and relaxing should be taken into account. So, I think the, the use of the Hosh City app to collect data is useful for, to help us identify and assess potential quiet areas in the urban environment. It can put the sounds assessed into, the con into context and explore how we perceive it. The council, us in Limerick, we can then identify the areas that are important to the public. We can review the assessments and we can focus our investigations further to consider official designation by the, the responsible minister. So, so that these areas can be highlighted for the benefit that they provide to us acoustically. And with that, I'll, I'll, I'll say thank you there. And uh, thanks very, yeah, thanks very much. Um, thanks very much, Simon and um, Antonella. That was uh, really interesting. Uh, we, I think we have some time for some questions here. Uh, you, you can answer them, panelists, directly through the chat box down there if you want. But I'll just, I'll, I'll put some here to you. Um, I'll open it up to the floor, I suppose. The first one is from Hillary, and she just wants to know. She's interested in thoughts from the panel um, about the role of silence in our current society and lack thereof. Would anyone like to come in on that? Antonella? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, do you want to answer? Yeah. So what's yes, your... Yes, I, I would answer with a question. What is silence for the person who asked the question? Very because good. we know that silence doesn't exist in nature per se. So what's, what is the idea of silence that this person has? 
Very good. Uh, okay, thank you for that, Antonella. A question with a question. Um, let me see. We have one. Oh, yeah, from Joan. Um, are there any sound walks planned for Dublin? I think this may be directed again at you, Antonella. Are there any sound walks planned in Dublin? Uh, yeah, that would be very nice to, to run sound walks in, in Dublin. Uh, maybe, Simon, we can think about this when the pandemic is over. We can think of, you know, a sound walk uh, series in Ireland. I would be delighted to, to be there and, you know, to get your feedback during the sound walks uh, on the way you perceive uh, the sonic environment and environment at all. Uh, what I really like when we do sound walks that um, is that uh, especially this uh, the, um, there is um, um, it, it there is the establishment of very special relationship with the participant in the sound walks. And we, especially at the end, when we exchange on the experience that we had, we are so much open to the environment, but also to ourselves. And we exchange so many insights and, um, yeah, and thoughts. And it's so much rewarding. So I would be delighted to come over. Brilliant. Okay. But so you can also, you yeah. can also, uh, uh, to go for a sound walk by your own, of course, and you can organize uh, your own sound walks with other people. And if you want, I can share uh, uh, the pocket guide to sound walking that I wrote a couple of years ago and very simple instructions on how to run sound walks so everyone can do it. All right, thanks, Antonella. I see so Nora. You're also very welcome to visit Limerick as well. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. Uh, Nora, do you have a question? No, I was just going to go back to, to Hillary's question about uh, about silence and uh, I agree that across many media uh, today we seem to have this need to fill the gap in both audio and visual um, and in music of course uh, silence plays a critical critical role both it, the pauses and the rests they carry so much emotion with them they, they create tension and suspense when you're left hanging to, to hear what's going to come next, it's, it's critical. And in contemporary music in particular, we've had a, a move towards soundscapes as opposed to melodic content. And that has opened up a, a lot of um, opportunities to have quieter sounds and extremes of quiet, which plays a central role. On the other hand, we also experiment with noise and very, very loud sounds. So it's kind of, it goes in both directions. It works both ways. But, um, but I think it's an excellent point around, uh, it's, it's kind of underrated silence really, isn't it, in our world today? Thanks, Amelia Nora. Um, could I field that question to you, Gráinne, in terms of a clinical setting? Yeah, I suppose it's one of the most important things sometimes, and for musicians, particularly when we're talking about sound, that to know that music's not the answer to everything, and that not every space requires music. Um, ears you know they don't have eyelids you know it's one of our senses someone can't turn off sleep perhaps is the most important thing for the person at that time somebody may just need to be with their own thoughts and you know really loud music coming across an atrium amplified is perhaps not the best space so it's something I know as um, in trained to be a musician in healthcare 
you know, you're on stage, it's like you keep going till, you know, the curtain comes down, whatever happens, don't stop, you know, sound keeps going. But it's a different thinking in a clinical setting. It's a clinical setting and it's about a relationship really with the clinical. If there's an arts hospital arts officer, if there's a nursing manager, it has to be led by them. They truly understand their patients and their those they're caring for. So it's it's a it's a it's a relationship really. Brilliant. Thanks, Gwanya. That's very interesting. Um we have one here uh, from Stephen. Uh, for Nora and Lawrence, is there some structural component of the geological process you are dealing with that is reflected in the piece? Um, Do you want to start that, Lawrence? Yeah, I'll start. Obviously, you can talk about the composition. I mean, the, the, the title Inception Horizon is... Um, this is typically between bedding planes in, in, in the geology where you, you get a slight weakness where the initial water can start to move and it, it you know it dissolves a little hole and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and progressively the water gets faster um and you, you get this kind of stepping down of of the flows as, as you move through the um the, the, the groundwater system um and, and also joining of, of flows like so in, not always but like in a sort of dendritic type um system so I, I well i think nora can talk about how she, how she brought this into music but that certainly that was when we did the field trips that was what i was trying to impart onto people how, how, how the water concentrates in the system and ultimately comes out in this spring out back out into the open air yeah so in in the music there was a stepping down in the pitches in the notes the cho the choice of notes um in some of the vocal parts and that represents that movement of the water in a downward trajectory and then also it builds up so you go from uh, more solos at the beginning and the sparseness and whispers to the full vocal sound of six part in the choir singing at fortissimo so they were the two the two main things that that traced the movement of the music if you like and then at a, a slightly more um detailed level some of the the types of water flow laminar and turbulent, the, the molecules move in different ways. And that was represented in sort of parallel steps in the music where things got repeated by a different voice or the, there was a chaotic section in the music where things are just um, shouted out and sung out sort of seemingly randomly. And that was to represent a slightly more detailed process in what's going on. Brilliant, thank you, yeah. Uh, excellent answers. I think are we at at the end of our uh, seminar? I think um, I don't. I think you've answered all the questions. Um, I think it's it's been such a, a wonderful uh, seminar. I could sit here all evening and listen to you all. I've learned so much, and it's just great to be exposed to to so much sonic um, research. And uh, you know, it's just brilliant. We're we're getting away from the visual. Um, so I'll just wrap up and say uh, thank you to everyone, Lawrence and Nora, Gronya, Antonella and Simon, and particularly to Jennifer, Jennifer O'Mara um, from the Department of Film here in Trinity College uh, for organising this. It's been brilliant. And to Francesco Rafferty for doing all the technical background um, stuff here on Zoom, which has been seamless for us all. So um, 
It has been my privilege to uh, host the Hubble's community. Manuscript, book, and, uh, and print cultures, stamp in provenance, and the history of the time of the library. As well as being here. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.